This episode is sponsored by Podgo. We use Podgo to monetize all of our podcasts and get paid within 24 hours. So if you're a podcast, want to get paid, be sure to check out Podgo. That's P-O-D-G-O dot C-O. That's Podgo dot C-O. And be sure to enter our name in the How Did You Hear About Podgo section of the application. See you guys in the episode. It's the language of the universe. But I don't understand it. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Math and Physics Podcast. I'm your host, Parker. And I'm Ray. And we welcome you to episode number 57, where today we have special guest, Dr. Jill Tarter here with us. So Dr. Uh, Tarter has very, very big in the alien, uh, in the alien part of physics. I will just say that to all our listeners out there. I know we've had a lot of alien episodes that you guys enjoy. So here is another extraterrestrial uh, episode where, so, so Jill, a little rundown. Um, we have as a former director of this, of, of the SETI Institute in America, which is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence and the co-founder of that institution. So before I, you know, start rambling, Jill, maybe you want to talk a little bit to our audience just about, you know, who you are, what you did, and yeah, just introduce yourself. Okay, right. Um, well, I'm formally retired. So mm -hmm. my job description would be chief cheerleader for all things SETI. Mm -hmm. But um, I got an undergraduate degree in engineering physics from Cornell, a PhD in astrophysics from UC Berkeley. And I got into SETI kind of by accident. So my first year as a graduate student, I was uh, supported to program the first desktop computer we ever had. Now it took two of us to get it up on the desktop, but once it was there, um, you could use it, but there was no language. So you had to program the computer in Octal. You had to set all the ones and zeros for each of the 11 instructions this computer could do. Wow. Oh my. And I, I learned that. I thought, it was a, I, I thought it was a lot of fun. And I programmed it to run a, an optical telescope at an observatory that UC Berkeley had for teaching. And then many, many, many years later, Right. I was about to leave graduate school and this piece of equipment was old and obsolete, obsolete and mm -hmm. uh, surplus. So one of the professors at Berkeley, an X-ray astronomer by the name of Stu Boyer, had been following um, the workshops that had been conducted at NASA Ames Research Center about looking for life beyond Earth. And he got really excited because they were suggesting using a radio telescope to listen for signals that were engineered as opposed to astrophysical. And he said, oh, UC Berkeley has a radio telescope in Northern California. And so he came to, um, to my office because he had no funds. So he'd been scrounging equipment and somebody had given him this old computer and pointed out that I was still here. And then I had worked with it. So he came to my office and recruited me to join his project. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I'm, um, I'm here in exactly the right place at the right time with the right set of engineering and astronomy skills. Uh, 
so that maybe I could make a difference in, in trying to answer this very old human question about are we alone? And so I started working um, for Stu on this project and then uh, went from there to NASA Ames Research as a postdoc and, and went over to John Billingham who was running these fledgling uh, discussions about life beyond earth and said, you know, I'd like to volunteer for you. And that was it. I mean, I just started doing SETI and I never stopped. That's amazing. Wow. And how was this project initially received by the greater scientific community initially? Like, was there kind of a pushback on maybe we should be doing other things or something like that? Yeah, there was, there was quite a bit of pushback and it was sort of, people would look at me and say, what's a nice girl like you doing in a, in a science like this, um, we spent a lot of time in our first years trying to make a distinction between this scientific exploration that we were proposing and conducting and all of the pseudoscience garbage from UFOs and, and other crazy ideas, right? Uh, we had to really stress the fact that this was being done in a rigorous fashion, the way you would do any scientific exploration. And the fact that the public and, and other professionals um, were willing to have a belief system that was based on stories and wild tales rather than actual evidence um, right. was something we struggled with. So it's less so today. Fortunately, um, but you know, whenever anybody asks me what I believe about life beyond Earth, I keep trying to tell them that belief is the wrong verb. Mm -hmm. I, it to explore is the correct verb because if I tell you what I believe, it doesn't change the universe. Right. The universe is as it is, and there is an answer to this question. Mm -hmm. um, and we're doing science rather than religion, so. Uh, we, treat, we continue to try and stress a scientific exploration. Mm -hmm. So during the time that I guess this institution was like when SETI originally started, was there, I mean, because you were talking about backlash with like, you know, a lot of people because a lot of the belief system was around, you know, these UFOs. And so how did you, I, I guess, like, was it like a process or what was the, what was the process of, of getting people's minds to think we're not trying to look for these ufos and these weird things like we are doing scientific research here like was there a transitionary process like from from the average human thinking seti is just oh it's just it's just looking for you know ufos here and there to oh it's actually looking for alien life scientifically like was there a transition no i mean it's a continuing it's ongoing the process is always ongoing and you just have to say to people, well, why do you, why do you think that? What evidence do you have? Who's shown you what data? Mm -hmm. um, because if, if our group ever tells you that we have detected evidence of extraterrestrial technology, you can be absolutely sure that we will provide you with, um, you know, an enormous amount of data to back up that extraordinary claim. So it's, mm -hmm. it's ongoing. And uh, for me, 
the science itself, the science and engineering and technology involved in this um, search is so much more interesting than the stories. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Totally second that. Right. Yeah. And I was just wondering um, today, like, what 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 is the scientific community in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence doing right now um, to look for these signals? Are we just using telescopes, looking in the sky, and just waiting, or um, anything specific? <clears throat> well, we've we've kind of transitioned to using the term techno signatures, right? So we are looking. So SETI, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, we can't define intelligence. We certainly don't know how to find it um, at a distance. What we can possibly do is search for evidence of someone else's technology that's detectable over the vast distances between the stars. And if we find the technology, we are going to infer that at least at some time, there were intelligent technologists that created it. So um, we are trying to use more broadly this term of techno search to emphasize the fact that it's not just looking for radio signals or optical signals. It's actually looking for any kind of evidence of someone else's technology. So there is, here's an example, and we can't do it now. We can't do it in the next decade, but maybe the decade after that. Um, there is a system called TRAPPIST-1 that we know is um, harbors at least seven Earth-sized planets orbiting the star. It's a tiny little red star. We've never seen those planets, although you have seen an artist's conception of that system above the fold on the New York Times. <laughs> a beautiful picture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We don't have telescopes that can image those planets, not yet. We're working on that. Um, But when we do have the ability to make images of those seven worlds, they're all at different distances from their host star. So they should all be at different temperatures. They should have different characteristics. But when we are able to image them, suppose two or three or four of those seven turn out to be identical, right? They shouldn't be in terms of mother nature, Mm -hmm. but perhaps someone with a very advanced technology and a lot of um, energy to commit might have changed many of those planets to make uh, more habitable real estate of the type that they particularly uh, enjoy. So that would not characterize like an anomaly that would have to, or that that would be more strongly evidence for like someone, you know, actively changing the environment. Yeah, that's pretty good evidence for geoengineering or astroengineering, we should say. Um, So something like that might be a a techno-signature. So we're trying to um, think as broadly as we can about the observable universe and what might be a clue to someone else's technology, even if it's not something that we went directly looking for. Hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's very fascinating because when someone thinks of you know looking for aliens, they think of you know you look in the sky and you're looking for something that's moving, right? You're looking for for like something weird, but when you take a step back and you think about okay, when humans themselves will advance and you know what are we gonna do we're gonna go to mars we're gonna try to terraform different planets and we're gonna try to expand our our reaches and if there are other civilizations elsewhere in the universe that's also probably what they're gonna try to do and obviously searching for these signals as as you said like planets that shouldn't look the same but end up actually looking the same is is much broader of of a a discovery i um i guess broad isn't really the word i'm looking for but i'm 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 thinking like you see these you see these planets and it's it's like a characteristic of of uh the evolution of a civilization it's not just like some 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 weird occurrence that anyone can claim like Oh, I saw this. I saw this, but there's no proof behind it, right? Mm-hmm. I think, I, I mean, were you trying to get to the point that proof was a, is a very essential part in all of this? Like, I think yeah. that is a very. I mean, I think that is the basic. That is the biggest part of this whole thing because I think, as you mentioned before, uh, previously, this is the biggest question ever asked in humanity's history. Like, are we alone? So it's 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 simply. It's it's easy to say that yes or no without any evidence or with lack of evidence or not enough evidence, but to actually have an answer with evidence is some because even saying no is incorrect because we don't have evidence for no. And even saying yes is incorrect because even though it might seem probabilistic, we don't actually have evidence for that. Mm-hmm. So it's it's all it's all a very big question about how we can, you know, experimentally find this evidence. And we're going to get into that, but I just realized that like we've, we've been rambling and really getting into the podcast without actually, you know, doing our introductory segments, which we usually do. This is super interesting. Yeah. It's a super interesting conversation because like who, who doesn't want to talk about <laughs> aliens with someone, you know, who is researching aliens. So anyways, but b- before we actually do get into the podcast, which we already have, let's just start up with our news segment with our... Uh, comment of the week so comment of the week actually comes from ernest on youtube here he says hey guys i've been listening to your amazing podcast for almost almost two months now and it has inspired me to keep learning physics to become an engineer and to make the world better Uh, i'm now in 11th grade and i was shocked when i heard that you were born in 2001 because i was born in 2002 that is actually kind of weird (laughs) because we are in second year so that's like a three-year difference but anyways um anyways big love from latvia so thank you so much ernest if you want to be latvia Latvia. wow (laughs) so if if you're listening to this podcast right now and you want to be the comment of the week make sure to leave a comment on youtube and uh yeah Mm -hmm. you have a chance to get on the podcast also, there's a there's a sorry for yeah. cutting you off, but there's a very big chance. And, and I do want to mention this, that by the time that this episode drops, we would have 100,000 downloads. So thank you to all of our listeners for continuing to listen and continuing to, you know, subscribe, follow on Spotify. We read those comments. And yeah, so the 100,000 might happen when episode 57 drops. So that's going to be very exciting. So once again, thank you for that. And let's see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. 
You were saying something before I kind of cut you off there? Uh, I don't actually remember. But anyways, if you're listening to this, make sure to follow <laughs> us on Spotify. Episodes every Monday. And uh, yeah. So I guess mm-hmm. to kick off this uh, this podcast, once again, um, I want to bring up this quote that I always, I always think about when I think about uh, looking for alien life. And it's that disregarding... Um, like completely disregarding the idea that aliens exist is like taking a teaspoon of the ocean and saying that whales can't exist, right? Because our, our minds cannot comprehend how big the universe really is. You can say 90 billion light years and everyone will go, okay, that's a big number. But in, re- in reality, it's just so difficult so difficult to wrap our heads around that and what we've seen in our universe what we've actually been able to sort through is very comparable to that teaspoon of the ocean and so i guess my question to you jill is how do you think we're going to get over that distance barrier that vastness barrier and how we're going to be able to kind of uh, like systematically just search through like the bigger the bigger part of the universe well over time so uh the first modern SETI paper was in 1959 by uh giuseppe cocconi and philip morrison first SETI observations in 1960 by frank drake and so when SETI turned 50 i did a calculation and i said already talks about looking for a needle in a haystack. Let's see how big that haystack is and how much of it we've searched. So there are actually nine dimensions to that haystack, right? Three space, one time, two senses of polarization, modulation, sensitivity. Um, And so I tried to boundaries on each of those parameters, how much we might have to look in order to be successful. And then I just multiplied them together to get some sort of nine-dimensional volume that my brain doesn't do any good at at, uh, trying to comprehend or image. And I said, okay, let's set that volume, that total volume that we might need to search to be successful or to draw strong conclusions about the lack of light beyond earth and um let's just set that volume equal to the volume of all the earth's oceans and so how much have we searched Mm -hmm. so at age 50 we'd searched one 12 ounce glass out of the oceans and that experiment could have been successful i mean there are places in the ocean if you dip that glass in and pick it up you're gonna see little fish inside but you know, 10 years later, when SETI turned 60, that volume was more like a, like a big hot tub or a small swimming pool. And the, fo- the point is that our ability to search is getting better um, and more comprehensive exponentially, mm-hmm. primarily because the speed of computing is improving. And I look forward very much um, in the coming years to having multiple uh, observing capabilities around the planet 
that will allow us to look for transient events, things that only last for a very short period of time. And you have to be looking in the right place at the right time to detect them. So you really need to look at all the sky all the time to do this well. And then the other thing I look forward to is bringing in machine learning and artificial intelligence. So since the beginning, we've been analyzing data that's been collected by telescopes. And we've been asking um, our computers, in this data, are there any patterns that look like this? And those patterns are ones that we have defined as being doable with technology, but not by mother nature. They're just the sort of things that you don't see in the astrophysical universe. So but, the, in, so sorry, sorry, were you saying something? I didn't want to cut you off. Well, no, it's just, you know, those are good ideas, mm -hmm. but in fact, there may be other patterns that we haven't thought of. So if we can in fact um, build neural networks that can look at the data a bit more uh, broadly and simply say, not is this pattern there, but is there anything there that isn't noise? Mm -hmm. So that intelligent of this from SETI is a very important very uh, is a very important word because you are in fact looking for intelligent life, not just life on other planets, right? Because all of your simulations, as you stated, that you're comparing your observations to, like what you should be seeing. I'm assuming that uh, now that you just said we're assuming that they have technology. So I'm assuming that assumption entails that the life is intelligent, right? So you're not just looking for life, you're looking for intelligent life. That's, that's SETI, but there is a whole field relatively new called astrobiology, which is in fact looking not for techno signatures, but for biosignatures, looking for um, the existence of life on other worlds by for example, looking at the um, constituents of an atmosphere of a planet. And if you look at the Earth's atmosphere and compare it to the atmospheres of the other bodies um, in our solar system, you'll see that the Earth's atmosphere is in extreme chemical disequilibrium. We have in the atmosphere at the very same time molecular oxygen and molecular methane. Now in the lab, if you put those two gases together, they instantly turn into water and carbon um, dioxide. And that's happening in the Earth's atmosphere all the time. But because on the surface of the planet, we have this really strong biological source function. You have um, oxygen being put into the atmosphere by plants and trees and other um, photosynthesizers. And then you have methane being pumped into the atmosphere by um, bovine flatulence, cow fart. Right? And because that is such a strong source, then even though methane and, and oxygen are um, reacting in the atmosphere, you still have this chemical disequilibrium signature. So biosignatures. And so the astrobiology community is thinking about how we might build telescopes, spacecraft um, with sensing capabilities that might allow us 
to do this chemical analysis of the atmospheres of distant exoplanets and look for this disequilibrium. Wow. And do you think this will return any information that is, I guess, as you said, it is very different because you're using astrobiology versus, you know, observational evidence from telescopes here. But I guess the question would be like, when you're comparing these two, you know, looking for intelligent life versus looking for life, I guess, I guess you already said belief is, doesn't matter, but I guess this is a question. Like, what do you believe would be, would be more beneficial? Like would knowing if life exists, like if let's say a, a unicellular organism exists in some planet, like would that really be beneficial to us? Like, what is your opinion on that whole situation versus intelligent versus non if we're searching for non-intelligent? I, I actually think finding life somewhere else in our solar system and showing that it was indeed a second genesis and not just life that got swapped between the planets over time, either from here to there or there to here, uh, I think would be extraordinary because in physics, there's a way of counting, right? It's one to infinity. Whenever you have a singular example of a phenomenon, it could be that that is unique. But whenever you find a second example, that number two is really important and you're gonna know that whatever it is is ubiquitous. So if we were to find a, a different example of life of any kind within our solar system, and it really was an independent genesis, then we know that life is going to be ubiquitous, right? It's going to be everywhere. That would be absolutely incredible if we find a yeah. second uh, genesis of life in our solar system. That is so incredibly local that, you know, that's really a, a telltale sign that it could actually be absolutely everywhere in the universe. Um, sure. So keep, you know, keep your eyes on um, the Europa. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Everyone's looking at that one right now, yeah. <laughs> Flying through the plumes of the um, uh, volcanic outputs from under the icy crust, mm -hmm. seeing if we can see some evidence of um, biology or biogenic precursor molecules in that uh, in those plumes. I believe Europa was the first one where they discovered, or I, or at least I believe I, I was hearing for the first time Europa was the one where, oh, its icy surface might have water or some sort of, you know, earth-like element underneath that might allude to life on Europa. I know it was, it was like a very big deal, and I think it still is. A lot of people are still exploring it for a lot yeah. of these reasons. But it, yeah, who knows? A lot, of, a lot of different observations. Um, to convince ourselves that underneath the ice there is really a liquid salty ocean and then wow. when we discovered these plumes from cryovolcanoes coming out of the south pole uh, it was really exciting and so yeah i mean people are taking bets some people like europa some people mm -hmm. like Enceladus, uh some people like titan mars <laughs> what about Mar mars no one likes mars just well, nuking the ice caps <laughs> not a possibility <laughs> Well, if you're talking about extant life as opposed to extinct life, um, then, you know, it's kind of, it's going to be kind of hard for Mars 
right, to have extant life unless mm -hmm. it is in um, liquid reservoirs beneath the surface. And so, yeah, we're planning on that too. We're planning on trying to look for that. And in fact, these um, recurrent slope lineae, uh, these areas on the sides of um, valleys that wet and dry, uh, depending on the, the sunlight, are really of interest. And as we are sending rovers to Mars, we're now having to think about you know, we thought, oh, well, we'll sterilize the rovers as best we can. And it's unlikely that any uh, biological material that we bring on these rovers to the surface of Mars will survive. But now we're having to define areas which are forbidden, which you're not allowed to think about putting a rover in because of this water or liquid that shows up on the surface which might in fact be able to host and to grow life that we bring there. So, you know, Mars is a really special case. If we find evidence of biology, we're gonna to have to make very sure that it isn't us. So, I mean, we could well be Martians. We've seen, we have meteorites in our labs that are pieces of Mars that have been chipped off by an impact and floated in uh, interplanetary space and eventually landed up on the Earth. In particular, the place where we go looking for them is the Antarctic um, ice flows. And when the spring comes around and you get these meltwater pools, you go looking for this, this white background and these little black rocks, right? They're pretty easy to find. Oh, wow. And we've had it with a rock called Allen Hills 84001 that there were features in that meteorite that were best explained by being alive or at one point alive, that these were microfossils wow. of life. And the, you know, the community went into overdrive debating whether this really was evidence of biology or whether it was evidence of some sort of geology. And in the end, two things happened. One is that we developed a whole suite of new instruments for studying micrograms of material that we had never had before. So that was a really good driver for technology development. And the second is over time, although the authors of that paper still contend that it's best explained by biology, most of the community has come up with other ways that are abiogenic, that don't require life, to explain what we've seen. But we're back at it again now over the last few months. There's been a claim that phosphine molecules have been discovered in the clouds of Venus. And more right. than that, the claim is that there is no known way to produce those large amounts of phosphine that are, are being claimed that doesn't require um, intermediate step and modification by biology. So when we find phosphine gas on earth, it's always associated with biology. Hmm. So we're, you know, we're back at it. Are we, are we really clever enough to rule out all potential chemical pathways 
to producing phosphine in the clouds of Venus, right? Are we, mm -hmm. can we be absolutely sure that we're so right that we can make this astonishing claim that you can't have phosphine there if it's not biology? Hmm. We'll see. We'll see how this plays quick out. Quick question. Um, how do we know for sure that these like sediments in, in the Antarctic in, in, in Antarctica are like all from Mars or aren't like a mix from like Martian rocks and earth rocks together? Okay. So the meteorites that we claim are from Mars, we say that because of the, the gases that are trapped in the meteorite and they represent, they're, they're um, pretty distinctive of the atmosphere on Mars. So that's how we claim that, that we, we know that they're from Mars. Okay. And so all of these things with, uh, with Mars especially, what do you feel about Elon? I mean, you've definitely heard about the Elon Musk, SpaceX, you know, going to Mars and everything, colonizing Mars. So I guess with all of these other options also available to us, as you very well mentioned, in the solar system itself, obviously Venus is an exception in itself, but like Europa, for example, like basically the question here is, do you believe Mars is the correct planet to target in our solar system? Well, certainly it's it's the closest, mm -hmm. right? True, um, true. Europa is a lot farther away and it's a lot of seeing <laughs> Um. So... This is one of the reasons the, the um, advent of privatized space exploration is one of the reasons that we're getting so um, agitated and excited about uh, questions of what's okay to do on Mars. You know, when it was space agencies, then COSPAR, which is an international um, committee on space exploration, could set up a set of standards about how you have to uh, sterilize anybody. And the standards varied as a, on the basis of how likely you thought it was that life could brought to another body could, could thrive. And so the space agencies um, have been self, uh, self-regulating. They've been pretty good at complying with the COSPAR guidelines. Now you're coming, now you're beginning to talk about private enterprise. And there's no way to enforce these ideas about what, what's good and what you shouldn't do. I mean, there's just no, there's no body COSPAR is an offshoot of the UN, but still, we're not sending UN peacekeeping troops to um, to SpaceX in, in Southern California to say, thou shalt not. So we're into another era of how we, how we decide what's appropriate, what's inappropriate, what's the best for humanity. So there's actually under the International Institute of Space Law, there's a, a subspecialty called meta law. 
been around since the 50s, I think. And here people are trying to understand what the legal and ethical principles are for dealing with the other, right? Mm -hmm. So, right, what, how, do you, how do you formulate a golden rule for interactions with an entity that isn't human? Uh, that how do you know what they would like to have done unto them, right? How mm -hmm. do you deal mm -hmm. with this? And so uh, there's a question, at least in the scientific community, about if we find evidence of extant life on Mars, should we leave Mars to the Martians, right? And what are their rights? Mm. How should we deal with it? I was a little surprised when I heard the term international space law. Like, that's a thing? Like, there's it, it, no way that's a thing. It, it is. It's not very well established. Or yeah. it's, it's actually um, taking off from the law of the sea. That's the, that's the basis mm -hmm. for trying to formulate these legal, mm -hmm. ethical principles. Yeah, because you take because you can't own any part of space, right? Like that. I mean, uh, so legally speaking, I guess like it's so like there shouldn't be a problem with simply you know going. Oh, actually, this actually kind of makes me think of a question because Parker and I were talking about this in a previous episode, and I thought about it, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. If let's say like I build a rocket and I'm trying to like send it into space, would I need like some legal documents? from the country that I'm sending it from or something like that? Like what's the situation with sending a rocket or anything really into space? Like, is there a legal, is there a legal, um, uh, like a boundary for space as well? Like, would you know this? Yes, there is. You have okay. to get a launch, you have to get a launch permit, um, from a body that's, uh, based in the, the UN. Oh, okay. Oh, and, wow. That's pretty high up. Okay. Um, you know, we're, we're, we, we're facing a tragedy of the commons with respect to at least low earth orbit, which is that we have so many pieces of stuff mm -hmm. up there that we're, we're either approaching or have exceeded something that's called a Kessler limit which is that even if we never launched another uh, spacecraft, the density of stuff up there now is already so high that they will collide with one another and break up into zillions of pieces that will collide more frequently. And so, um, you know, it's possible that at least in um, sun-synchronous low Earth orbit, uh, we could lose access to space for a century or so until all this stuff collides and turns itself oh, into wow. dust eventually. That's a long time. <laughs> yeah. Um, so um, it's generally referred to as space situational awareness, trying to track all this stuff and understand um, what collisions might happen and to the extent that there is propulsion on board any of these objects, move it out of the way and avoid collisions. And now it's required 
that when you launch something, you have an end of life strategy that is enough fuel to boost it up out of um, the uh, low Earth orbit into a graveyard orbit where it will be safe for a very long time. So we didn't worry about it at first. Mm -hmm. And we, we've gotten ourselves into this potential tragedy of the mm -hmm. comms. Because there's a lot of dust and debris as well, right, in, in space that we weren't exactly, as you said, like thinking about when we were originally launching our satellites. But now I'm assuming obviously that debris actually is starting to add up and might actually play a quite a devastating role, a destructive even, if it goes south. But, you know, that's a possibility well, uh, that I guess well, we didn't think if about. You look at the, if you look at the windows of the space shuttle, for example, you can see these pits that have happened that have been caused by being hit by dust grains and things like that. It isn't though until you get to thinking about interstellar travel at speeds that are some fraction of the speed of light that these dust grains become incredibly um, potentially harmful because the kinetic energy when you're moving at those speeds, the kinetic energy involved in a collision with even a small dust grain, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's it's like a freight yeah. train coming yeah. at you. All right. So um, really quickly, before we get into our next uh, question here, we just wanted to let everybody know that is listening right now um, that, <laughs> you know, we're aware that not everybody is in university, like, Ray and I, and um, but are still interested in, in these topics of science and physics and all that stuff. And we truly recommend brilliant.org, where they have courses on, uh, you know, math, astronomy, but is particularly uh, relevant in, in this episode, where you can go and learn about all these interesting topics on observational astronomy, and uh, all these interesting topics that Ray and I are actually learning right now in school. Now, of course, mm -hmm. uh, all of these courses are interactive. You can learn and test your knowledge all at once, which is, of course, the best way to learn. You know, you can't just watch mm -hmm. YouTube videos and then uh, expect to retain everything. And so Brilliant.org also has uh, these daily challenges, which are always fascinating, creative, and uh, they really test mm -hmm. your critical thinking skills. And so... Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, we we really yeah. recommend that. They also have a really cool data collection course, I believe, like uh, where you learn almost how to collect data, like experimentally collect data with especially when we're talking about, you know, any type of type of observational astronomy, like, you know, all of that would come all of that would play into um, into the situation. So for the first 200 listeners who click on that link, get 20 percent off your premium membership so you click that link in the description below, or you can just go to brilliant.org slash MPP. And yeah, you get 20% off your premium membership, which I think is a pretty sweet deal. <laughs> so yeah, so uh, click the description uh, link in the description below. Awesome. So uh, segueing back on, I wanted to ask, I kind of wanted to now take the, take the conversation back to when Jill didn't know astrophysics. So before everything started. So we usually have like this segment on uh, whenever we have a guest on the podcast where I call it the classic question, where it's 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 almost like 
because it's so classic to our podcast where I basically ask them, well, what got you into your field? So I guess, Jill, what got you into, you know, I guess liking aliens <laughs> and like astronomy, physics, like what was the whole situation? So my dad was a professional football player very long ago for a couple of years. And my mom was an executive in retail. So if you look at pictures of me when I was a little girl, I'll be dressed up in this pinafores that are gorgeously ironed and starched and I have little lacy socks and Mary Janes on my feet. And I'll be holding a big old fish, right? That my father had caught. <laughs> and so I had this tension between spending all my time with my dad and being a tomboy and then my mom getting fed up with this after a while and saying, to my dad, you know, Jill has to spend more time with me and do girl things. So my father had this conversation with me when I was eight, nine, something like that. And he said, your mom thinks that you need to spend more time with her doing girl things. And I just couldn't have been more angry. <laughs> it seemed to me so unreasonable that you had to choose to do one or the other. Why couldn't you do it all? And so, you know, tears, because I, even at eight and nine, I knew that if you wanted your father on your side, you know, tears helped. <laughs> and so we continued this conversation. And after a while, my dad said, well, I guess if you're willing to work hard enough, you can do whatever you want. And I said, I'm going to be an engineer. <laughs> wow. I don't think I really knew what engineers <laughs> did, but I knew my dad had a lot of friends who were engineers and they seemed to have a good life. And then a couple of years later, my dad died, right? So I learned this really difficult carpe diem lesson about, you know, don't put off asking a question today because you might not have the person around that can answer it tomorrow. And so I just was left with this really stubborn, well, I told my dad I was going to be an engineer. So damn it, I'm going to be an engineer. And I went to engineering school at Cornell. I was the only woman in a class of 300 entering that year. That was a bit of a real drag, but again, stubborn. I told my dad I was going to do it. And then I realized that I was getting very good problem-solving skills in this engineering course. But at the end, and it was a five-year course, at the end of it, I looked around and I said, hmm, engineers are as boring as my professors. I'm going to find something else to use my problem-solving skills on. Yeah, it, was a, it was a fair criticism of engineering school back in those old, old days. Um, and so I stayed around Cornell and just started to take a whole bunch of different um, graduate courses in all kinds of different fields and ended up taking a course in star formation that was taught by Edwin Saltpeter. He's fantastic, fantastic teacher. And you know, who knew that stars had a life, right? They were born, they lived, they died in different ways. And I just thought, oh, these are interesting problems. And so I decided to go into engineer, uh, to uh, astronomy as a graduate student. And then as I've already discussed, SETI came along, not because that's what I was set out to do, but because I knew how to program that old obsolete computer that um, someone came and asked me to join their team. And I thought, 
Yeah, I got hooked and I've stayed hooked. So you were taking all of these graduate courses and you stumbled upon astronomy. Were you interested in a specific topic in astronomy or just astronomy in general? No, it was the star formation that got my that got me interested. And then, you know, I, I started to, okay, I didn't do much astronomy as an undergraduate engineering student. So we'll go back and, and study the, the theoretical uh, foundations and, and um, yeah. Being the only woman in, as you said, what, 300 students? Like, I, I was reading that that on your Wikipedia page and I'm like that that like I mean I guess like what I can't even find the words what what was your experience like as being uh, the only woman in that program well it wasn't great um at, again old old long ago times and mores so not only was I the only woman but because I was a freshman woman I was actually locked into my dorms at night at 10 o'clock and the doors didn't open again till six in the morning. And so wow. I missed out on the team building piece of the engineering education because all of my male students, you know, nobody cared when they went to bed and whatever. So they're all over on their quad uh, forming teams to answer all the problem sets that you have to do as an engineer. Uh, you take the odd numbers, I'll take the even numbers, we'll compare, you know, et cetera. And so there was this whole business of learning how to be part of a team that I never got. And that really was a problem later on. I was never part of a team until I had to lead a team. And if you don't know how to get the best out of the individuals and their in, in unique skills, it's really hard. So that was a lesson I had to teach myself much later in life, which would have come naturally had I been one of the guys mm -hmm. uh, in my engineering cadre. And, you know, there were all kinds of embarrassing and difficult things. Um, it's better today. You know, I, yeah, for sure. years ago, I did some work with Cornell and um, two years ago, at least, the entering engineering school was 51 percent wow. women that's incredible so, wow that's amazing wow that's a big percentage increase well, from the one majority 51 yeah also a lot of years guys yeah of course of course of course that's a big factor to play into it wait that's incredible so were you yeah i'm guessing you were the only woman throughout your entire your, your, your entire five-year course because... No, subsequent, subsequent years, some other women entered the engineering. Um, right, but not so, at your mm -hmm. uh, level, right? Wow, that must be, yeah. Because I was also thinking about the one thing you said where they used to lock your doors at 10 and like, what? How is that even legal? <laughs> like, they just lock the girls' doors at 10 p.m.? Like, how can you... How can it they do that? Called, it was called a policy in loco parentis, right? So you take these fragile freshman females and you have to act as if you were their parent and protect them. Wow. I mean, I, it, I just remember. Um, so I had a policy that I set for myself, which is I didn't date 
any engineers. I, I just didn't like the fact that they showed up for dates with a slide rule on the belt. <laughs> so I made it a policy to date architects. Um, there was this tension between engineers and architects on the campus. And so um, the architects every three years had this amazing gala ball, bacchanal, right? It, they take some building that was going to be demo, demolished or redone and they go in and they decorate the hell out of it. They, they create an atmosphere, they create a, a, a world and then have a big party. So as a freshman female, I had to get permission, right, to go to this ball and um, in particular permission to come back to the dorm after 10 o'clock because the thing didn't end till two in the morning. And so uh, it was great fun. I, I went. Um, actually, my partner and I won the dancing contest. <laughs> wow. Nice. The theme that year was Black Orpheus. So Rio, Brazil, Asamba, et cetera. Um, so that was, that was such a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> wow. You have to get a permission slip just to come to your own dorm. Yeah, that That's, sounds insane. Yeah, that, I mean, that was literally a different world that we lived in at that time. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It's gotten better. Mm -hmm. Oh, and, for sure. And, yeah. and worse. Now we discriminate against other um, categories and classes in a way that, that we shouldn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the situation right now with, uh, with, with race is becoming more of a question and less sexuality, which was the case. But I believe it was also, was it this year or last year, I believe, where two women scientists for the very first time ever individually won Nobel uh, a Nobel Prize without the inclusion of a man of, of a male anywhere in their in their in their thing in their thesis right mm -hmm. so so I'm, so I'm assuming like that like that was a huge uh, moment for women in science so like it's it's definitely improving like we definitely see that curve like moving in the positive direction it's not there yet but it's still it's still in the positive direction which mm -hmm. is good yeah but in this country when the discrimination and uh disequilibrium has guns in the mixture it's uh we're really at a very difficult social time right now right yeah oh yeah wait you're in america right oh yeah you're in america as well by the way i i don't even know if we mentioned oh yeah university of toronto we're in canada oh. so so we're a little little different uh mindset with the whole gun situation anyway let's, let's not get into second amendment <laughs> let's let's stick um, to uh yeah so i wanted to ask you um in like before actually going to college in high school were you set on becoming an engineer just because you had told your father i'm going to be an engineer and did you actually enjoy the physics the math and all the requirements to becoming an engineer so that also motivated you to go into it or were you just doing it because that's what you put your mind to well that's what i had decided i was going to do um and so I had problems with guidance counselors who said, what do you want to take calculus for? You're just going to grow up and have babies, right? That, what? that, negative that is terrible to say. That is terrible. terrible. <laughs> but on the other hand, I had a physics professor called Doc, right, who became a, a surrogate father for me. He was wonderful. And I don't, okay, this is really crazy. <laughs> but at the time... If you were a high school girl 
What you do is wear a chicken wishbone on a gold chain around your neck. I can't, I can't <laughs> defend it, but that's what you did. So I went to Doc and I said, Doc, I want to silver plate this thing, right? I want my wishbone to be special. And so he worked with me after school. We, we wrote to all kinds of companies that electroplated baby shoes and all of that sort of thing to find out how you could do this. And uh, I, just, I just loved working with him. And, and eventually we managed. And, and of course, he couldn't do it today because um, silver arsenic is <laughs> not something you allow high school students to play with. But we, we did it. And I finally got a silver plated wishbone, which tarnished within a day <laughs> for a while. And so um, I, I really enjoyed the ability to um, work on a, a far out crazy idea with someone who is so supportive. Wow. Yeah, that must have really been uh, been been nice. I mean, that experience. So continuing on to um, your your whole PhD experience at Berkeley, your master's and PhD in your doctor, uh, your doctoral experience. Um, I was reading that in your PhD thesis, the term brown dwarf was coined for the very, for the very first time. So maybe and I read that and I'm like, you know what, I'm not going to read because because usually what I do is I look at the dissertation, look at the thesis report, maybe like understand what they're talking. But the moment I read Brown Dwarf, I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to let her do the explain. This is too this is too interesting. So maybe you would want to talk about your topic for your PhD thesis and how did Brown Dwarf, you know, become, I guess, so important. Graduate school was better than undergraduate school, but it wasn't. Fantastic. Perfect. OK. Um, my first week. In graduate school, there were two other women who entered in my class, and the three of us were um, called to the department chair's office. And he welcomed us by saying, you women are so lucky that all the smart men got drafted for Vietnam. Wow. Wow. Right? And then so we didn't say a word. I mean, we were so stunned. We, were, you know, we got outside after this was all over we went out in the hall and we said holy did he really say that you know it was amazing so brown dwarfs my um at the time we were dealing with what we called in astronomy the missing mass problem uh, eventually it would turn into dark matter but back then we called it the missing mass problem and when you looked at the orbits of stars um, towards the edge of the Milky Way galaxy. They were moving in a way that implied that there was more mass interior to their orbits than we could measure by looking up the amount of stars and gas and dust. We summed that all up and we came up about, what we thought at the time was about 10% short. Okay, so what can be supplying that mass? And my thesis advisor wondered if it might be little stars that never turned on because the physics of what determines um, what masses a cloud of gas is going to um, break up into is different than the physics that defines uh, what masses of stars are going to be able to stably fuse hydrogen to helium at their cores. 
So you could form stars that were too small to be able to do this stable fusion. They might fuse a little deuterium, but they would eventually, essentially just continue to contract and go dark. So might there be a lot of these things out there that were contributing to mass that we couldn't see? And so I wanted to model them, right? So you need an equation of state to, to define the interior of the star. And so I used actually um, nuclear codes from Lawrence Livermore to make that model. And it wasn't, that wasn't unique. Other people had done that before. But then if you wanna figure out what these stars look like, at what wavelengths um, there is a peak of emission from the interior of the star, you have to fit an atmosphere around that interior model. And at the time, at low temperatures and densities, the opacity tables that we had uh, access to were terrible. And I never managed to successfully get a stable atmosphere around my interior model. So I couldn't tell astronomers, well, if you're looking for these, you should be looking at this wavelength or that wavelength. It was really frustrating. Um, and so I didn't, I, I basically couldn't define a color temperature for these stars. And having a friend who worked with Edmund Land at Polaroid, um, she told me, well, you know, Edmund Land said that brown is not a color. I said, well, that's what we need. We need brown dwarfs, right? Because it's not a color. It isn't giving anybody the wrong impression of what part of the spectrum you should look at to find these things. And so that's what I called them. It, it, it caught on and it took actually 25 years before the first one was ever observed. Hmm. So they are real. So it was a good idea. Are these brown dwarfs, like they still have like a, a hot core, right? They're still fusing like uh, heavy. No, it's cool. Okay. Down, all right. Was it, it, it got hot when they collapsed, right? And the rate of nuclear fusion is very strong function of the temperature. They got hot, but never hot enough to keep mm. this up. And so the rest of the process is just cooling off and crystallizing the interior. Okay. And does, uh, does the knowledge of brown dwarfs, and I'm assuming again, because your SETI uh, opportunity simply came by and it wasn't something planned, so I'm 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 gonna take the assumption that your thesis wasn't really based anything to do with extraterrestrials or something like that. It was just purely based on the astronomy and physics behind your, I guess, your stellar systems. What you were studying at that time. That's right, and um, I my I did a postdoc at NASA Ames Research Center. Yeah. And the the idea for the postdoc was that. NASA was thinking about launching what they called uh, at the time um, the um, shuttle infrared telescope. And so I went to work with those folks to figure out, okay, where should we look for these things? How do we build the instrumentation to do that? And the shuttle facility eventually then became CERTIF, the space infrared telescope. And so that's what got me to NASA Ames, was how NASA could build an instrument that would find these things if they were there, if they were real, 
and, and they are, and they're quite significant in terms of their number. Um, but uh, once I was at NASA Ames, then I was right next to John Billingham, and uh, I think he called it the Interstellar Communication Committee or something. So I just raised my hand and volunteered. So do wow. we do we find brown dwarf systems kind of like a like a solar system where you have like a brown dwarf and then like orbiting bodies or have we seen brown dwarf like in binary systems with a regular star or two brown dwarfs orbiting each other anything like that I'm not you know I haven't followed it I'm not sure that we found two brown dwarfs orbiting one another but we certainly have found brown dwarfs in binary systems right and so it's really hard to decide whether what you're seeing is a, mo a massive yeah. Jupiter or actually a brown dwarf. And the distinction is something you can't see by observation. It's whether or not um, it condensed independently or condensed in orbit around another star. Hmm. So. Mm -hmm. So when I'm actually observing these systems, right, I was I was reading on this uh, AI bot made by Google, right, like the Google AI, where they specialize in finding exoplanets mm -hmm. using, I believe, transitionary processes, right, like measuring brightnesses of the, of the parent star and determining whether or not a planet that would have passed it is in the hypothetical Goldilocks zone. Right. So I guess I guess the question here is, does that just like remove the job of any any human scientist working at SETI because isn't that basically doing the work that you would have to do with your telescope well this idea of exoplanets when i started at nasa ames we didn't know of any planets around any other stars and so because SETI was interested in this question and if planets were very rare you know, SETI wasn't going to have much chance of being successful. So we started holding workshops on how you might detect planets around other stars. Yeah. And for example, Bill Baruki, who uh, was the PI for the Kepler spacecraft mission, which was so um, productive, he attended those workshops. And he, he's another stubborn guy, right? He came up with this mission and submitted it I think seven or eight times before wow. it was finally selected uh, for flight. Uh, so yeah, the transit method is one. There's another method called the radial velocity. So transit works well if you're um, if the plane of the uh, planetary orbit is in your line of sight. Um, because it'll pass in front of the star. Mm -hmm. Radial velocity uh, is a measurement of absorption lines in the stellar spectrum. And if the planet is orbiting in such a way that at some time it's behind the star and it's pulling the star away from you just a little bit, and then when it's in front of the star, it's pulling the star towards you, then when you look at the emission spectra, from the um, star itself, you'll see that the emission lines are redshifted and blue shifted periodically, mm -hmm. redshifted. Mm -hmm. um, so that was another method that was developed in these workshops. And was this method proposed 
um, because we saw this effect with the sun and Jupiter, how like the center of mass between the two is slightly off off the 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 axis of the sun, and so we see it wobble. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's that it's that planetary wobble, right? That I, I'm assuming caused people to assume this radial velocity method would work. You know, stars are moving randomly uh, around us in the galaxy, in the local center of rest, and their their motions are on the order of a hundred kilometers per second. So you need to pick out this radial velocity change, which is on the order of ten kilometers mm. per second. And now we're pushing it down with better spectrometers to one kilometer a second. So it's a very dicey measurement mm-hmm. to make. Interestingly yeah. enough, uh, I feel like I should mention this. In our astronomy course, we actually made that calculation using the radial velocities. We were like given a data set and we were supposed to like estimate that like, I I think we were basically just supposed to analyze the system, but I, I, I understand what you're saying by estimating the radial velocities to understand the relationship between the planetary body and the star, because it could really tell you a lot of information about it. Right. right and it, this gets whole harder. it gets harder when there are multiple planets right. <laughs> because then you're spe- Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. Because then would you not also have to factor in like planets um, influencing each other and not only by the star? Like, do you, uh-huh. I'm assuming you also factor that in, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that would be an important thing to, to take into consideration. I'm assuming mm-hmm. when we're, when we're looking at Are there at any that. other ways to detect exoplanets or is that pretty much? it yes um gravitational lensing is another way right so if you're looking at a distant star and another star passes in front of that uh the gravity from that star can cause the image of the distant star to split into multiple images right and if indeed, and so you'll you'll get you'll get the uh, intensity of the dis- distant star also changes. So you'll, as this um, passage happens, you'll you'll get the brightness of the distant star to increase, and then decrease, and that's kind of usually weeks sort of time scale. But if the star in the foreground also has a planet orbiting it then on top of this rise and fall of the intensity of the distant star, you'll have a little bump, right? That's caused by the fact that there's also a planet. And when it transits or, or passes in front of the star, you get a small additional gravitational lensing from, from that planet. Mm. And I'm assuming again, with multiple planets, this would become even more difficult, right? Yeah, right. well, there is no, you know, there is no, unique solution to the caustic curve for even one planet but you can get um you, by simulating a whole bunch of things you can get a good you know this is most likely what mm-hmm. it is i had maybe one of our last questions here uh yeah we're getting yeah. close on time um, just this could be maybe just like a brief answer but do you think that the future of astronomy and astrophysics really does lie in finding um, like concrete definitions for dark matter and what it really is. Yeah, I think our challenges um, 
are, okay, what the heck is dark matter? What the heck is dark energy? And as you go back in time to higher densities and higher temperatures, at the moment, we can't make gravity and quantum mechanics play nice together. So that is a problem that lots and lots of people are working on. Uh, yeah. And yeah. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's amazing that we have pieced together this scientific, um, what do I want to call it? Creation myth based on observing just 4% of the matter energy density in the cosmos. And we, we know that it will change in the future. It will get modified as we learn more. But I think it's astonishing that we've been able to do as well as we have, given the limited amount of um, energy and matter that we have access right, to. Because there is, there is a shift yeah. in, uh, in our perspective when we realize like, hey, there's a lot of things we just can't see at all. What do we do now? <laughs> right? So then we have to start mm -hmm. thinking about, okay, like, how do we, how do we find this invisible stuff? And uh it's a big part of our yeah, universe. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so we well, have to take have it to, into consideration. So your measurement techniques have to be on very large scales. Mm -hmm. you, know, you don't sense this stuff unless you're looking at things that are extremely large. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So maybe for the closing question, I can ask you, um, this is obviously very, very subjective, but when you retired in 2012, I believe, what this is uh, like, imagine I'm like a science auditor almost like coming and I'm asking you or like SETI, the, just the institution of SETI, not, not you specifically, but since you were the director, I'm assuming you would have a lot to say against this question. So if let's say I'm asking SETI in like the last 30 years, 40 years of its, of, of it running, what have you come up with? Like, what can you tell me that I didn't know? 50, 60 years ago, like without SETI, what do I know now? Like with SETI, <laughs> then I wouldn't have basically. Sure. Right. Well, I mean, the game changers over that time period have been two. They've been extremophiles, um, organisms that we find on this planet that live in conditions which I was told as a student could not possibly host life, and exoplanets. And those two game changers have now made it the next question you ask is given all this potentially habitable real estate, is any of it inhabited, right? Either by technological civilizations or by some other biology. And, and that's what we know now that we didn't know before. So this idea of life beyond earth is really something whose time has come. So in 20, 2005, I think it was, Craig Venter, you know, sequenced the human genome. But he also made the following prediction. He said that the 20th century was the century of physics with all kinds of success of special and general relativity and quantum mechanics and all that sort of thing. And he said the 21st century is going to be the century of biology. And that was bold, and I think that was right, but I don't think he was bold enough because I actually think the 21st century is going to be the century of biology on Earth and beyond. And, um, you know, the, 
So again, going back to Craig, uh, I used to say that we would never be able to understand um, with respect to biology, what was necessary and what was contingent. I mean, it just happened that way here. But actually, I think synthetic biology is now allowing us to um, not need a second example from somewhere else to puzzle this out. I think maybe we can do it in the lab. Uh, and I think that, um, I, you know, I think in some sense, the question of is there life beyond Earth is, is driving a lot of this new. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah, that, that is, I think, the fundamental question that all of us are striving for, right? Like we always, because we want to know if we are all there is to the universe, which doesn't seem likely. But again, we need that evidence, right, that we were mm -hmm. talking about, that formidable evidence. Yeah. So, Jill, so, yeah. thank you so much for coming on to the okay. podcast. Um, this was obviously for us an amazing opportunity. We, we learned a lot today. Thank you. And um, yeah, we also mm -hmm. have tons of other questions now. And so, you know, later down the line, <laughs> maybe you can come on for another episode. That would be awesome. Okay. Well, thanks for inviting me. But I do actually have right. to run off now. Yeah. So once again, so, so again, just we're just going to make the end real quick. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, and, uh, yeah, so again, as Parker said, hopefully we'll do this again, Parker, you, maybe you just want to wrap up with where you guys can follow us real quick. Yeah. So follow us on Spotify, Apple, uh, subscribe to us on YouTube and, uh, follow us on Instagram at math.physics.podcast. And so, yeah, stay tuned for the next YouTube video because it's going to be our hundred K Q and a that a lot of people have been asking for. So it's only going to be on YouTube, not anywhere else. So like, just be sure to check it out if you guys are interested. So once again, Jill, thank you so much for coming on. This has been episode number 57 of the Math and Physics podcast. I'm your host, Parker. And I'm Ray, and we will see you soon. Bye, guys. <laughs>